There's a line from the book Zorba the Greek that pretty accurately describes the first days of a retreat. There's some character in the book that says, self-knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> you know, we've come from so many different parts of the world. Come to the retreat to practice, we sit down, and in these first days in particular, we find ourselves faced with so many different kinds of difficulties. There's sleepiness, there's boredom, there's discomfort, there's restlessness, there's desire, there's lust, there's expectation, there's comparing mind, there's judging mind. Most of these states, most of these mind states, fall into five categories that the Buddha singled out as being particularly seductive states that we get caught in again and again in our practice and in our lives. He called these the five hindrances. And he said, when we attend to these hindrances carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. A very clear statement about the power of these hindrances. But the bad news of our increasing self-knowledge, which is the presence of these hindrances, is in another way also good news. Because when we attend to them carefully, rather than carelessly, these very hindrances become the basis for a deeper understanding. A deeper understanding both in our meditation practice and in our lives. So tonight I'd like to talk about these states, how we can recognize them, and how we work with them skillfully. They usually, in the traditional lists, begin with desire. But when I begin with desire, I never get beyond it. So I like to start backwards. So we'll do the list in backward order. The first of these, in reverse order, is the mind state of doubt. Now when we use the word doubt in English, it can refer to two very different qualities, one of which is helpful and one of which is not. The helpful doubt is the quality of investigation, of inquiry. It's that sense in the mind, what is this? What is the nature of this experience? So that's a helpful kind of doubt, and in Zen it's often called the great doubt. It's opposite to a kind of blind belief. But the unhelpful kind of doubt, we might call skeptical doubt. And this is the mind state of uncertainty. It's the mind state of indecision. Now it's like coming to a crossroads and not being able to decide which road to take. So we simply go back and forth between alternatives, not going anywhere. Skeptical doubt attended to carelessly really brings our mind and our practice to a standstill. Because when this is strong, this, this quality of indecision, of uncertainty, of bewilderment, it doesn't even give us an opportunity to take a decision and even make a mistake, but something we might learn from. We're always checking ourselves. It's as if we're frozen, you know, wondering, trying to decide. A few months ago, I read a novel called The Life of Pi, by Ian Martel. It's, it's a wonderful book. 
And in it, he had this one line about doubt, which, as soon as I came across it, I, this goes in a Dharma talk, because it so characterizes the quality of doubt. He said, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. So we need to pay attention to this state when it arises. In meditation practice, doubt can take some very particular forms. And it helps us to recognize them so we can see them clearly. One form is doubt about the practice itself. Now you come here, you sit down from a busy, engaged life in the world, and the thoughts start coming, what is sitting here watching my breath have to do with anything? It's really useless. You know, or maybe the doubt takes the form of comparing practices. Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting, you know, or Sufi dancing. It seems more engaged, more fun. There can be doubting thoughts of many about the teachers. You know, many of you have studied with a lot of different teachers. Probably each of them with a somewhat different perspective. You know, on the practice, on how it should be done. So very typically the mind can start comparing, especially when we come up against some difficulty. Well, somebody else said we should do it some other way, and that seems easier. It's just the doubting mind arising again. And we get into the, the dilemma, the bewilderment, well, who's right in this comparing mind? And perhaps most difficult to work with, you know, there's a doubt about the practice, perhaps, doubt about the teachers, but most importantly, Self-doubt can arise. Now, doubting our own ability to undertake this practice. Doubting our ability to awaken. Am I doing this right? Or, I can't do this. It's too hard. It's not the right time. I should have waited. All of these are manifestations of forms of the doubting mind. So when this pattern of self-doubt is strong, you know, when it has become a habit in our minds, it becomes a very debilitating force in our lives. Because we're always undermining ourselves. You know, we hold back. There's an interesting phrase in English which I think illuminates the power of this mind state we say somebody is plagued by doubt. It is like a plague. It's like a plague that weakens us. Instead of arousing the energy to make the experiment, just to plunge in and do whatever the activity is, and engaging fully in it to see for ourselves whether it's of value or not, When doubt is present, when self-doubt is present, we simply get lost in this endless speculation. And then doubt becomes self-fulfilling. Because being lost in these thought loops of doubt really is useless. And so then the, the doubt self-fulfills. Well, the whole practice is useless. Because in fact we're not doing it. The endless conjecturing of mind, which I think in some way in our culture we have all been trained to do very well. You know, just this endless conjecture is exhausting. And in the Buddhist text, 
It's likened to a thorny mind which keeps jabbing us. You know, and when those times when doubt has come in the mind of various kinds, you know, and I've been caught by it, it really does feel like a thorn that keeps jabbing. And it makes us irritable, it makes us discouraged, it makes us dissatisfied. Now the great seduction of this mind state, and it is very seductive, it's easy to get caught in it. The great seduction of it is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. We hear these very wise sounding voices in our minds. You know, very reasonable. And so we get caught up in them, in these endless thought loops. So what to do? How do we <clears throat> how do we attend to it carefully? How do we bring mindfulness to it? First, we need to recognize the various voices of doubt as they arise. Note them as soon as they arise, or as soon as you become aware of them. I can't do this, doubting tape. It's too hard, doubting tape. Who are these teachers anyway, doubting tape? Just seeing it as a thought. If we catch the tape quickly, we can see it arising close to the beginning and not get seduced by its very convincing tone, we see that it's just another thought. And we don't give it any power. In that moment of awareness, when you see the doubting thought, the tape, and then you come back to the breath, to a sound, to the movement, in that moment of coming back to just what's arising in the moment's experience, in that moment of wakefulness, is there any doubt? Is there any confusion? Is there any problem? Coming back to the breath, coming back back to hearing a sound. Everything becomes again very simple and very clear. There are times, especially for people of a more uh, intellectual bent, if doubts are very persistent, you know, and you try the careful noting, and but they're really pressing on you, it can be helpful to have some intellectual clarification. And so you can bring up whatever that doubt is in the interview. Because so much of the Buddhist teachings, so much of it is pragmatic common sense about how to free our minds. So many of these doubts on an intellectual level can be clarified easily. This is the first of the hindrances. And it's said that of all of them, it's the most dangerous. Because when we're not with it carefully, it brings our practice to a standstill. So it really is important to be aware of it, to be mindfulness, to mindful of it, and to work with it. The second of the hindrances, which you probably are familiar with in these first few days, are the mind states of restlessness, of worry, of agitation. Now these occur generally when there's too much energy in the system and not enough concentration to hold that energy. The container of concentration is not steady enough to hold the overflowing energy. And that results in restlessness or agitation. And this also can take many forms. Sometimes we feel this restlessness in the body, you know, and it feels so intense, like we want to jump out of our skin. We just cannot sit still. I had different experiences of this 
one time in Burma, you know, when I was at the monastery, this overwhelming restlessness seemed to come at the same time, eight o'clock every night. And I don't know why it happened that way, but this strong, strong restlessness. And it was very difficult to sit. So I would get up and be basically running around the monastery. It's not quite a run, but walking really fast. You know, I'm sure the Burmese thought, you know, who is this crazy Western yogi? But I just had to do something with that energy. Another time, this is uh, in the early years when teaching a retreat in Hawaii. Um, in the middle of a Dharma talk, I was giving a Dharma talk and this wave of intense stress. And I was just sitting there, you know, okay, hold it together. <laughs> so it can be strong, and it happens. You know, but as we just investigate it and be with it and learn to work energetically, slowly it comes into balance. Sometimes the body is still, but the mind is incredibly restless. You know, it can't settle down. It's just lost in thoughts, in imagination, in fantasies, in plans. It's as if our mind is just jumping from one thing to another and refuses to settle on the breath. You know, we can get caught up in obsessive thought patterns of worry, of regret. There's one phenomenon which I want to talk about under this category of restlessness. And it's good to talk about it right at the beginning of a long retreat so you're forewarned. And this is the mind state that we call yogi mind. Now, yogi mind is a very particular meditative phenomena. And it's the state where thoughts, where our involvement in thoughts, are all out of proportion, either to their importance or even to their connection to reality. But we just create some scenario in our minds and we think the whole world is depending on what I do about this. Years ago, I was doing a self-retreat here. And I was, at that time, I was living in room M101, you know, kind of the sitting room upstairs. And I was sitting and my mind was getting quite concentrated and still. And all of a sudden, I began to hear these voices come through the pipes. And I was hearing all these voices, and in my mind, these were voices of people who were in the kitchen. Now, the kitchen's pretty far from 101, but somehow I had in my mind that the voices were carrying through the pipes all the way upstairs into my room, and what I was hearing was that different of my friends had killed one another, and you know, somebody was dying of something, and I was just creating all of these, and I really believed it. You know, I thought, why isn't anybody telling me? You know, oh, they're trying to protect my retreat space. And I actually had to go down and check. You know, I went down and said, what's going on here? As it says in one Zen, I think it's in the teachings of Wang Po, it's all the brushwork. It was all the brushwork of my own imagination. So when a thought comes repeatedly, particularly about a situation on the retreat, and it comes in the form of, or the, with the preface in the mind, but this is really important. Let that be a warning signal. Because not much is. There might be an occasional emergency, but mostly when that thought is coming in the mind, this is really important. Check out yogi mind. There's a very subtle kind of restlessness, and the awareness of this is really most applicable to experienced yogis, because it's a kind of restlessness that comes 
later on in practice when things are really going quite well. You know, the mind is still, the mind is concentrated, things are going pretty effortlessly. And at that time, there can be the experience of thoughts arising and kind of carrying us away a little bit, but it not really feeling like a disturbance at all. You know, because the general momentum of the mindfulness is so strong, you know, and things are flowing so smoothly, that the thoughts come and they're there and it's not disturbing, we're not agitated, and then they fade away. But when you look more carefully at that, you can see that even that very kind of delicate state of being lost in a thought is itself a kind of restlessness. You know, and we attend more carefully to that and just bring a more refined attention. At that point, we find ourselves dropping into an even greater clarity and stillness. The restlessness happens on many levels, and we want to get familiar with it. It's not uprooted, according to the Buddhist teachings, until one is fully enlightened. It's one of the last of the defilements to be uprooted. So it's worth getting familiar with, sort of making friends. What to do? when restlessness on any of its level, that intense restlessness of the body, the restlessness of the mind, this more subtle kind I mentioned. As with all the other hindrances, the first step is to recognize it as quickly as possible. If this is restlessness, we name it, we open to it. And we can begin to understand the energetic process of it. We can see, yet there's too much energy either physical or mental energy, not enough concentration. And in understanding that, we can begin to play with ways of bringing those two factors into balance. Sometimes there's this imbalance, this restlessness, because we're too lax. We're too lax in our attention, in our mindfulness. You know, we simply let the mind continually wander off. If that's the case, if we feel like we're being too lax, then it's like reining the mind in. You know, and we really focus down. Closer attention. We've been speaking about connecting with the breath. In general, but but specifically in times of restlessness, it can be helpful not to focus on the breath, but to focus on a half-breath. A whole breath, an in-out cycle, might be too long, too much opportunity for the mind just to jump off. But if we give the mind a shorter duration, which to pay attention, okay, just a half-breath, can I really feel that carefully? just the in-breath, just the out-breath, that can be a way of reining the mind in, of stabilizing, strengthening samadhi, the one-pointedness. Sometimes we need to give ourselves a little talking to, you know, where we realign, or we remind ourselves of our basic intention or aspiration in being here. And one time in my practice, when I was having a lot of mental restlessness, my mind was just going here and there and indulging a lot of thoughts. And then at a certain point, I saw this happening, and I said, Joseph, do you want to think, or do you want to get enlightened? You know, and it was just a reminder to myself, I don't need to keep indulging that. I can really arouse a certain quality of intentionality here. Okay, come back. Pay closer attention. So that's on one side. That's when we're too lax. Sometimes we get restless because we're too tight. We're trying too hard. You know, we're getting we're getting wound up. 
So then we need to open to become more spacious, to become more relaxed. Making the mind big enough, spacious enough, to hold all the energy. And we can do that by opening to sounds. We just sit, let the mind become very wide open. Just sounds are appearing and disappearing, so we create this big space. Or we might be with the breath, but not zeroing down on it, but feeling the breath within the context of the whole body. So we're making, again, a bigger, a bigger container to hold the energy. Restlessness, when it's strong, is like a whirlwind you know, through space. It's a problem when we're identified with the whirlwind. It's not a problem if we become the space then it's just this experience washing through, passing through. So there's doubt, there's restlessness. The third of the hindrances, which the Buddha talked of, which when attended to carelessly, clouds wisdom, clouds awareness, leads to vexation, are the mind states of sloth and torpor. And those are great words, because they so reflect the state. Something I've mentioned in many retreats, but I love mentioning it, so I'll do it again. Reading, I was reading in a natural history book about the animal, the three-toed sloth. And the three-toed sloth hangs by its feet, you know, from a branch. And it's said in the book, it's so slothful that you could fire a gun next to it and it wouldn't even turn its head. You know, it's just hanging there. And then once every, I don't know, really long time, it kind of makes its way down, maybe munches a few, whatever it eats, you know, mates or something, and then goes back up the tree and just hangs there. Well, this is the mind state of sloth, sleepiness, dullness. It's very common on the first days of retreat. You know, as people come in, if you're feeling it, you know, and if you're experiencing it at different times, it's not surprising. It might happen generally, the general feeling through the day, or it might be periodic you know, intermittent periods of real dullness. Why do we feel it so strongly, especially at the beginning of a retreat? It's so strong because in our daily lives, most of us are moving on the energy of stimulation. You know, that's what's, that's what's energizing us. It's you know, of, of stimulants, of tea and coffee, but also all the input, all the sensory input, the conversation, the engagements with people, you know, the books, the newspapers, the activity. And it's like our lives are being driven or are run by this energy of stimulation. We come here, it's like 90%, 95%, of our usual stimulants are absent. So quite naturally, the first response is going to be kind of collapsing into this place of dullness. But something quite extraordinary happens. And those of you who have done you know, many retreats know this. We go through the dullness, and we actually start connecting with a much deeper source of energy within us. And this happens for most people. You know, we need to go through the cloud of dullness, but then we start connecting with the energy of this mind-body system. This whole, this whole system is an energy field. And when we connect with that, there is a quality of wakefulness and alertness that comes 
that's not dependent on external sources. You know, and so some of you might find yourself getting alert earlier in the day, you know, or finding you're awake later at night, you know, or needing less sleep. This is what typically happens over time. There's a more profound meaning to sloth and torpor than even these kind of states of intermittent sleepiness or dullness. And I think it has a very profound implication for our lives in understanding the deeper meaning of it. This is the manifest manifestation of sloth and torpor as that pattern in the mind of withdrawing from difficulties. The pattern when in the face of difficulties, the pattern of retreating, the pattern of withdrawing. That's the deeper meaning of sloth and torpor. It's the habit that we have of not engaging fully with the difficulties as they come but of pulling back. And it's interesting because some people might feel quite skilled at engaging with the challenges in their daily lives, but then fall into this other pattern of retreating when we face the inner difficulties. Or it might be the reverse for some of you. In one way or another, we have to see this and how it's working. Now, just like doubt can come masquerading as wisdom, we're seduced very often by sloth and torpor because it comes masquerading as compassion. You know, we might feel tired, we might feel bored, we might feel restless, some might feel discomfort. Some, some inner difficulty is arising. And instead of engaging with it and investigating and being with it, we hear this very kindly voice in our minds. Let me take care of myself. I should be good to myself. A little nap will be just the thing now. And of course, there are times when we do need to rest. So it's to acknowledge that. But many times, we don't. It's just that quality of sloth and torpor where we're retreating from being with a difficult situation. Years ago, in the, in the early 70s, I practiced a lot with uh, the Vipassana teacher Goenkaji. And he's a very powerful teacher. And his schedule was quite rigorous. Uh, we would get up at four in the morning. There would be a two-hour sit before breakfast. You know, he would... Uh, very little walking So in, in that practice. So there was a lot of sitting through the day. Well, every morning I got up, four o'clock, and I got up. You know, I made the effort, kind of actually hurried to the hall to find a place against a wall. You know, there were no chairs there. You know, and so I'd sit, and then after about 10 or 15 minutes, I'd lean against the wall, and then you know, five or 10 minutes after that, I'd be asleep. And this happened every day. You know, I'd get up, I'd make the effort to get up, and then I started hearing this voice in my mind. Joseph. What's the point in getting up? You know, you're just sleeping through the sitting. You might as well sleep and get up for breakfast and then be alert and energized for the rest of the day. But I didn't listen to the voice. It was there. But I kept getting up, kept falling asleep, and then one day I walked in there and I was totally alert the whole time. And it's been that way since. It was such an important lesson to me that even when we think 
you know, nothing's happening and why don't I just pull back and take it easy? Even when you think nothing is happening and there's no fruit of what you're doing, the very effort to keep going, that energy to engage just to keep doing it, at a certain point bears tremendous fruit. So we want to be careful about that voice, not be not be fooled you know, by that compassionate sounding voice in our minds. So what to do with sloth and torpor? How to practice with it? We want to recognize it, we want to name it, it can be very helpful <coughs> with all the hindrances, particularly to use the tool of noting because it's just an extra support for really that clear recognition and naming it, noting it, seeing it, becoming mindful, and investigating it. Something I found very helpful to do when the mind is sleepy or dull, by way of investigation, I'll often ask myself the question, what is this experience that I'm calling sleepiness. You know, we can quickly name it, but how often do we actually go into it and examine, well, what is, what's the constellation of experience? The sensations in the body, the quality of the mind. I had a very interesting discovery in this. At one point, I was doing a retreat with our teacher, Deepama, who, as many of you know, is this wonderful woman from Calcutta. And on one of the Saturday nights, we'll be playing a tape of a talk Sharon gave about Deepama's life. A very inspiring teacher. So I was doing this retreat, and she was totally loving, but also quite, quite demanding, you know, of effort. So she said, Joseph, I just want you to sleep three hours a night and don't lie down during the day. That was a stretch. It was a big stretch. I was really tired during the day. But then she said one other thing. She said, just sleep three hours, don't lie down during the day, but if you fall asleep when you're sitting, never mind. So that was kind of an interesting instruction. So I did it. I mean, I, was, I had tremendous respect and love for her, and she inspired me to, to practice in this way. What I found was, by making that effort, that commitment you know, to engage, to be there, the sleepiness would come, the dullness would come. But because she had given me permission Okay, if I fall asleep, never mind. I stopped fighting with it. And it was really interesting to see what happened. Because I stopped fighting with it, sometimes I would doze off, you know, and generally just for a few moments, but I would come out of it quite quickly because I wasn't using up all that energy in struggle. And I began to see that within the state of sleepiness, there is a thread of concentration. It's like that state just before you fall asleep. You know, everything gets very relaxed, very quiet, and sleepy. But at that time, the mind is not restless. It's like, there's, a, there's an aspect of concentration within the sleepiness. So if we're not fighting it, and we're there and investigating, sometimes we just kind of sink into it mindfully. It's like pull on that thread of concentration, on stillness, on calm. And the very mindfulness and investigation brings the balance of a little more energy and wakefulness. So it's workable. This is, this is why all of these states can become, can become very interesting to explore them rather than just sink into them.
Sometimes you can do fast walking. Sometimes doing very slow walking. If you're feeling sleepy, you know, try fast walking. I found at times slowing myself way down, microscopically. How slowly can I walk and still move? You know, the, the uh, mime, uh, Marcel Marceau, he does a routine where he goes from standing to, it's either sitting or lying down. You never see him move. Because the increments of movement are so small. Well, that's quite amazing. And one time, you know, filled with sloth and torpor, I just tried doing that. You know, how slowly can I move and still move? Within two steps, I was wide awake because of the level of interest and the level of care that it needed. So play with it. Rather than retreat from it, really go in and engage. There's doubt, there's restlessness, there's agitation, there's worry, there's sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances that really obscures our awareness, obscures the freedom of mind, is the hindrance of aversion. And we experience aversion in many ways. We experience it as anger, we experience it as hatred, as fear, as annoyance, as irritation, as boredom, the judging mind, as ill will. All of these are forms of aversion. And they're all mind states which are conditioned by our reaction to what we find unpleasant. Very few people have aversion to the pleasant. Maybe some do, but mostly we feel aversion when something in our world, inner or outer, is unpleasant. Then we get by an aversive reaction. Very easy to see this in relationship to physical pain. You know, you're sitting and some pain and discomfort comes. What's the first response of the mind? Oh, good. This is really a good chance for me to look at pain. We might get there, but it's usually not the first reaction. Something painful happens, and we can feel the mind pulling back, contraction. We don't want to be with it. We don't like it. The Buddha said something very radical to this point. And for me, it's like a, what's the word, a, a pole star, you know, a reference point. He said, as long as there is attachment to the pleasant or aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. That's quite a statement. As long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. So I heard that and I thought, Joseph, you've got a little work to do here. <laughs> but what I so appreciate about it is the clarity. And it really shows us what we need to do, what our practice is about. And we do, we, and we can do it. You know, maybe for a moment or two at a time. This is not impossible. So we see it in terms of our relationship to physical pain. Aversion arises often about painful situations that have happened in the past. You know, you're sitting here, you know, walking, and thoughts are going to come up, memories are going to come up about difficult, painful past experience. We think of someone or some situation and we can get angry just thinking about it. But what's important to see is that in that moment, 
we're really just getting angry at a thought. The person is not there. The situation is not happening. It's simply a thought in the mind. But because we're not seeing that it's just a thought, we're not clear about that, the thought comes and it triggers this reaction of anger, ill will, whatever. What's more remarkable even than that is that we often get angry about imagined future experiences that have not even happened. We imagine something might happen, and then we think about it and get angry. Most of you are probably familiar with Mark Twain's famous adage when he said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. Because we create these scenarios in our minds, you know, this brushwork of our imagination, and we look at it, and we get angry, we get upset. We can get really impatient and frustrated with difficulties in our practice, you know, or unpleasant situations on the retreat. It's not easy. A hundred people come together and are living in close quarters, you know, in silence, not the usual ways of relating to one another. Well, difficulties will come up, inevitably. For years here, we had what we call the window wars. Because some people come into the hall and like the windows wide open, fresh air. Other people came in and closed the windows because they were feeling a draft. It took us about 20 years to resolve that one, <laughs> to come up with a policy. So it may take as many years to figure out this whole dividing stuff. <laughs> so be patient. And very often we project our dissatisfaction, you know, with the situation or surroundings or things that we don't like. Then we start projecting that dissatisfaction on other people. You know, it might be on us, the teachers, it might be on fellow yogis. And so then happens what we call the Vipassana Vendetta. Because there's someone here or several people that you just can't stand. You know, you don't like the way they sit, you don't like the way they walk, you don't like the way they dress, they take too much food, they go too slow, whatever. And you don't even know them. You know, it's just, it's just this mental play. Well, our responsibility is to really see that it is the brushwork of our own imagination, that it is in our minds. Now we get angry when we personalize an impersonal situation. Now how often do we get really upset and we're caught in traffic or we go to the airport and flights have been canceled? You know, or the weather isn't to our liking. So how to work with all these forms of aversion? They're going to come. Now this is a very deeply conditioned pattern. As with all the others, we need to recognize them quickly, be mindful, so we're not simply getting carried away, simply being lost. But a lot of care is needed, because we need to be aware of it without judging the anger or the aversion, because the judgment then just becomes another form of it, without judging the aversion, without judging ourselves for having it. It's simply a mind state that's arising, that we can be aware of, we can be mindful of. Sometimes it's holding that aversion with a lot of compassion. You know, where we really have a soft attitude, not indulging it, but we're really holding and seeing the suffering of it. At other times, we can use a sort of wisdom. i found that with certain mind states, particularly on the ill-will side, that are just repetitive. They keep coming back again and again and again. You know, you've seen it 10,000 times. It's not that you're learning anything new from it. At that time, 
You know, in some of the Buddhist traditions, Manjushri is the Bodhisattva of wisdom, and he's depicted with a sword, the sword of discriminating wisdom. So at times, with these very repetitive patterns, unskillful patterns, sometimes we want to be soft and, you know, loving towards them. Sometimes we want to wield the sword of wisdom. Okay, enough. I don't need to do this. You know, we really come from that warrior place of strength. The danger or the caution in that is to, if you're wielding the sword of wisdom, to do it without aversion. But it's really from a place of strength. No, this is enough. Bring the mind back. So play both ways. At times, our aversion or anger is fed by some underground emotions. You know, associated emotions that we're not seeing. So, for example, very often anger is fed by fear. Sometimes it's fed by hurt. You know, that's what we're feeling, and it comes rebounding as anger. Sometimes it's fed by self-righteousness. You know, we have some view or opinion, and we're really right, and it just works us up. So in order to free ourselves, when we're caught in that kind of complex, we need just to look and see, okay, is there something underneath? Something underneath the ill will, something underneath the anger, some feeling, some emotion that I'm not seeing. Because when we open to the underlying one, then it's possible to become more accepting and to let it go. What is so surprising is that even though it's clear to us that anger, hatred, you know, fear, aversion of all its kinds, that even though we see that it's really a state of suffering, it is still incredibly seductive. That so often we justify it to ourselves. Well, for whatever reason, I should feel angry. It's not that we want to, or can even, stop it from coming. You know, and often the emotion of anger is giving us important information about a situation. So all of that is true. But then the question is, what do we do with it? Do we indulge it? Do we feed it? Do we get identified with it? Do we vent it? Or can we take what we need to learn from it and actually let go of the anger, the ill will, that which causes suffering? The Buddha had a really very incisive phrase here. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. And it's just interesting to watch deeply within oneself. As with all the teachings, it's not a question of believing them. Everything that's said here is an offering for you to investigate. It's all about seeing for yourself. So just to see whether this is true. Whether we get seduced by its honey tip, but when we look very deeply, we see that the source is poisoned. Holding on to anger is like holding on to a hot burning coal. Well, I should be angry. Who is it that's burning? We are. There's a great story that Ajahn Amaro, a a monk in the now living in America in the Thai forest tradition, who's a student of Ajahn Chah, in his last book, he tells of this incident. Ajahn Chah was this great Thai forest master who died some time ago. But when he was a younger monk and he was practicing, but already teaching. He had gone off on retreat, you know, into kind of the jungle around the village where he lived, where his monastery was. 
He was doing a retreat, practicing, and one night the villagers were having some kind of celebration. You know, and in Asia, very often, these celebrations, they have loudspeakers, and they're just going all night. You know, loud music. and So Ajahn Chah was sitting up in his little, his little hut, getting more and more angry about the noise, especially because he was the teacher to those villagers. You know, don't they know that I'm up here practicing and, you know, they're probably drinking a lot of liquor and getting drunk and breaking all the precepts and they really shouldn't be doing this. And his mind was going on and on. So then he started looking at his mind. And this is, this is from Ajahn Amaro's book, you know, uh, quoting Ajahn Chah. Well, they're just having a good time down there. I'm making myself miserable up here. No matter how upset I get, my anger is just making more noise internally. And then he had this insight, that Ajahn Chah had this insight. Oh, the sound is just the sound. It's me who is going out to annoy it. If I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it has to do. That's what sound does. It makes sound. That This is its job. So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's not going to bother me. Aha. <laughs> That's our whole practice. I have four minutes for desire. <laughs> There'll be more talks about desire during the retreat because in some way desire is the most powerful of these hindrances. Craving, desire, wanting. It is the driving force of samsara, of this whole wheel of life and death and rebirth. It's the force of desire which keeps the whole thing going. So it is a very, very deep and powerful force within us. We experience it in so many ways. We can experience it as obsessive passions. We experience it as addictive cravings. We experience it as recurrent fantasies in the mind. Or even just momentary whims of wanting. On retreat, the field of desire narrows a lot because there's not that much opportunity to fulfill many of them. But they can arise, the wanting mind can arise just as strongly. You know, it can be sitting and getting totally lost in sexual fantasies. Or just indulging the pleasant reveries. You know, we're just sitting and enjoying Pleasant dreams, pleasant fantasies. We enjoy our internal dramas or stories. In meditation, desire takes a particular form, which is very uh, helpful to see, and that is the form of expectation. Now, it's so common in practice to be practicing with that expecting mind, with that wanting mind. It's not helpful. It doesn't serve our awakening. When you're sitting, and there's the mindset, what I call the in order to mind, we're with the breath in order to become peaceful, in order to become calm, in order to get to the next breath. Whenever there's that sense of in order to, we're pulled forward. We're not in balance. We're not in the moment. We're caught in a wanting. One of the most insightful investigations of this hindrance for me has been in seeing how desire or wanting is behind many, if not most, of the different kinds of suffering that arises in our lives. 
So I would suggest just looking, when you're in some state of suffering, whatever it may be, see if you can trace it back. Not stay so much in the whole story of it, but see if you can trace it back to see if there's a fundamental wanting at the root. Wanting something. Wanting something to be different. Wanting something to continue. Wanting something to go away. If you can trace it back, it gets pretty interesting because I found that when I trace it back, the suffering back to the wanting, I can feel it energetically as a contraction. I can feel that holding, that contraction of the wanting energy. And I feel it right here. I feel it right in the center of my chest. You may feel it someplace else. But what I'm suggesting is leaving the story of it, going back to the energy of it, and if you can become mindful of that, then it's actually possible to relax it. To see that our identification with that wanting is a choice. The wanting may have come quite spontaneously, but how we're relating to it is a choice. We can either feed it, we can get lost in it, we can expand it, take a deep breath with the realization, I don't have to want. No one is coercing me to want. And in the release, the relaxation of that contraction, we come again to a place of ease. One of the most freeing aspects of working with desire is seeing that the desire itself is impermanent. It does not have to be fulfilled to be resolved. If we can sit with it, become mindful of it, and just watch desire, 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 desire for whatever it is, at a certain point that desire is going to go away because it, like everything else, is impermanent. Pay particular attention to that moment when we go from the desire being there to it not being there. And notice what that feels like. I think you will see that in that moment when the desire goes all by itself, it feels like we're being let out of the grip of something. But see for yourself, really, really look at that. See for yourself that quality of the heart relaxing. One of the most effective notes I have made in working with desire in the mind, particularly kind of fantasy type desires, where the mind is just getting caught again and again, the note I make is dead end. It's just a dead end. You know, we might get lost in it, go down the whole road. It doesn't go anyplace. So we get to the end, then we just come back, okay, back to the breath, back to the walking. When you see that it's a dead end, and when you remind yourself of it, maybe you won't go down the road that long. You know, and able to let go of it quicker. So these are the hindrances. When we attend to them carelessly, they obscure our understanding, they obscure our awareness. When we attend to them carefully, these very hindrances become the basis of our awakening. I'd just like to close with some words from one of the really great Thai forest masters. He was like the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Man. He said, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well.
To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nirvana. Clearly, the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. Sit for a few minutes. May the merit of our practice together be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings. <laughs>